Today we continue that study that we've been carrying out for the last several weeks of what do we believe about, and in this section we're talking about uh, various aspects of church life. So today, what we believe about church discipline, and here from God's holy word, uh, Matthew chapter 18. This is God's holy word, the Lord Jesus speaking. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for these words of our Savior Jesus. We ask you that we would be granted your spirit in such a way that we would obey and we would submit to his word. As we reflect on these things and learn together, we pray that you would guide us into truth. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri, was once the home of the famous outlaw Jesse James and his family. Back in the 1800s, Jesse James's mother was a Sunday school teacher in this church, and Jesse was a member in good standing when he robbed a bank in the middle of the day in Liberty, Missouri. Now, the church minutes record that the congregation deliberated on how to discipline Jesse James, but the whole matter was complicated by the fear that if they exercised any form of church discipline, he might just come and burn down the church building. And so they were afraid to do anything. Everyone in town knew that the outlaw was living on his mother's farm, so two deacons were nominated to go confront him and to begin the process of following Matthew 18. The minutes of the next business meeting report that for some reason or another, the two deacons could never quite work out a time to go visit Jesse James to call him to repentance. Uh, the church records reflect at some point later, uh, Jesse showed up at the church and wanting to spare his mother from embarrassment and wanting to cause no embarrassment to the congregation, any more embarrassment, he asked that he would be dismissed from membership and the church eagerly complied with that request. There's another story about the same time from the neighboring state of Arkansas where another congregation faced a controversy, this one regarding square dancing and whether Christians ought to go to square dances. Now the question for this church wasn't whether or not Christians should square dance. Of course, we know that's not something you do. Obviously, you don't, you don't dance, obviously. But the question was whether Christians ought to even attend the dances for the social aspect, because that's where everybody in the community is on a Friday night or a Saturday night, whether it's permissible for Christians to even go watch the square dance. 
After much deliberation, the church decided that just going to the square dance was sufficient grounds for church discipline, and they excommunicated an entire group of young people who had gone to a particular dance as spectators. These two stories represent two extremes of the way that churches fail when it comes to the proper exercise of church discipline. And elders and churches are often caught between these two extreme tendencies. Either we are too passive, like Jesse James's church, or we are too heavy-handed, like the anti docido church. And there's no safe refuge from criticism, whichever path you take. If you practice any kind, any form of church discipline, you run the risk of being called judgmental, mean, harsh, unloving, graceless, or if you don't uh, practice any kind of church discipline, you are permissive and lazy and passive and compromised. And because no two cases are ever the same, we're always in danger of being accused of favoritism and partiality. If you have seen one church discipline case, you have seen one church discipline case. No two are ever alike. There are all different kinds of complications and factors and issues that we must take into account. But if we are to be obedient and to follow the Lord Jesus and his word, we must exercise church discipline without prejudice, with compassion, with long-suffering, with as much consistency as humanly possible, with a deep, sober interest in, the, the, in, in preserving the peace and the purity of the church, not adding to God's word, not taking away from it, being sure to stay within the bounds of jurisdiction that we talked about last week. We don't take on the role of the family. We don't take on the role of the state, but that we stay in the jurisdiction that the Lord Jesus has given us. We are, we are required to do this by the Lord Jesus. The Belgic Confession tells us that the marks of the true church are the right use of the sacraments, the pure preaching of the word, and proper church discipline. Those are the three marks of the true church. So the church that will not exercise discipline is not a true church, according to the Reformed Confessions, and I agree with that. The right exercise of church discipline sets the boundaries of the church. It identifies who is part of us and who is not. Just, just like a country has to have borders, a body must have an immune system, just like a marriage must have an exclusive covenant. So the church must self-regulate her boundaries or else she loses her identity. She loses her integrity. She loses her ability to defend herself against all kinds of diseases of sin and false teaching. Matthew chapter 18 is a popular text to turn to when we talk about this subject but I deliberately read a bigger chunk than what we normally read. We usually just focus in on those few verses around 15, 16, 17 about going to your brother, and we're gonna look at those today, going to your brother, taking a couple of witnesses, telling it to the church. If they won't hear you, then let them be as a heathen. That's important. But I read a bigger chunk than that because what comes before that and what comes after that is also essential to correct those those tendencies toward tyranny and toward passivity. If we would just widen out the reading, we see this whole section Jesus is dealing with this, this very topic. 
So where did I start? The, the parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one who has gone astray, it comes in the context of this, of this subject. When Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, that moreover means I'm still on the same subject. I'm still talking about the same thing. So he tells the parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go wander, uh, to go get the wanderer. And he says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, this is all the same subject. He's talking about the same thing. And, and so that means that our correction of sin, our confrontation of error comes in the spirit of the shepherd who goes after the wandering sheep. It, it comes in the spirit in the hope of restoration and hope for repentance. James, in his epistle, draws on this very image. At, at the close of James's epistle, the last thing James says, he says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and certainly he's got in his mind, or at least the background, this wandering sheep. He says, if any of you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, someone goes out and gets him like the shepherd, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That is the goal from the very beginning, from the outset, the entire goal, our desire and prayer from beginning to end, when we engage in this process, is that souls would be saved, that sins would be covered, and that wandering sheep would be returned back to the fold. So Jesus addresses that on the front end. The primary teaching of that, of that parable, the primary context of that parable is correction. It is the church dealing with sin. So the process of, dirt, of church discipline isn't antithetical to that tender shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. That shepherd is an example of properly executed church discipline. Then after that section, after if your brother sins against you, go and tell him, um, right after that section, uh, is when Jesus says, for when two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. We always quote that. Uh, you know, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. We quote that when only like three people show up for a Bible study. Or we quote that when, you know, it's like, you know, five people at a prayer meeting and we say, oh, well, the Lord Jesus is here. And that may be true, and, and, I, and I believe it is. But Jesus isn't talking about prayer meetings here. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what happens when the church gathers to act in the authority that Jesus has given her, specifically to act with the authority in dealing with disobedient, wayward people. As we saw last week, the authority that Jesus gives his church is real authority. The church doesn't simply have this ceremonial or artificial function in the world. Because Jesus says, when you gather, I am there. And what he's doing there, he's reinforcing the delegated authority that he has given the church. Listen to verse 18 again. He says, this is Lord Jesus speaking. He said, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When we exercise the authority that the Lord Jesus has given us in reverence, and holy fear, and with great sobriety, we must not hesitate to use it when it's obvious that we must. We, we are sober, and we are reverent, and we are compassionate, and we are long-suffering, but we must not hesitate when we must. To not exercise the authority that the Lord Jesus has given us 
is for us to be disobedient ourselves, to put ourselves in danger of judgment, to exercise that authority in an onerous way, to lord over the flock as Jesus prohibits us from doing, to act as tyrants or bullies is also disobedient. Um, this is Christ's flock. This is Christ's family. Um, and we must always remember that. Well, before we get too far, let's define what kind of situation we're talking about. What circumstances call for the church to exercise discipline? The church is called to act whenever there has been a significant lapse in self-discipline. When things are, are working the way that they are supposed to, there's never a need for the state or the family or the church to exercise discipline. So long as there is self-governance, as we said last week, as long as there is self-control, as long as there's self-discipline, then we don't need external correction. Parents, one of the greatest gifts that you will ever bestow your children is training in self-control. Teaching your children how to self-regulate their emotions, how to curb their desires, how to tame their tongue is invaluable. We teach them how to control their body, how to be in command of their frame. That it is possible, it is possible for you to sit still for just a couple of minutes at a time. It is possible for you not to have every uh, thought in your head come out of your mouth. That is possible. It is possible. It is physically, humanly possible for you to keep your fingers out of your nose. It is possible to do that. You can do that. And, and these, are, these are things that we train them. Uh, they learn how to enter a house and, and not touch everything and climb all over everything, unless they're invited to. <laughs> they, they, learn, they learn how not to be a Tasmanian devil that leaves a, a, a debris field behind them everywhere they go, how, how to clean up after themselves, um, how to eat like a human, how to walk and talk and carry themselves like a civilized, mature person. I'm, I'm not saying they learn that at two. I'm not saying they got it on perfectly at five. But their entire time in your house is a time of training in self-control so that when you launch them into the world, you launch a human being and not a Tasmanian devil. You launch somebody who knows how to control themselves and has their body under control. Now, now when they are little, when, you know, when they're one, two, three, four, five years old, it seems like you have to say no uh, 10,000 times a day, and you get weary of that, but then you realize and be encouraged in this that you are establishing the boundaries of life. You are teaching them when you say no, you are teaching them how to say no to themselves. You're teaching them how to say no to the flesh, how to say no to sin, that, that they can learn that's not good for me, and that's not good for me, and maybe that will be mine one day, but it's not mine today, and I must not destroy this thing, and I must not eat that thing that I picked up off the carpet. Um, and, and, and it's channeling them to obedience because you're not gonna be there all the time to make decisions for them every day for the rest of their life. So be encouraged, mothers especially, that your work is going to be fruitful be faithful and consistent in order that they learn to self-regulate, that they learn how to self-moderate, how to curb their appetites so that today it's saying no to these things, but one day it's learning how to say no to sin, how to say no to foolishness, how to say no to destructive behavior. That's the work 
that we do. And, and like I said, it's the greatest gift. One of the most amazing things you can do for your children is to teach them self-control, to regulate themselves. Because as we all mature, as we all grow, see, if you don't teach them when they're little, they're gonna have to learn it the hard way when they're older. They have to learn it through tough lessons, like social rejection. Nobody wants to be around somebody like that. And they're gonna have to learn that such a painful way to learn it. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to learn it when they're little and they're growing up. Because we all, we all must, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, continually correct ourselves. We must all mortify the deeds of the flesh. We must all flee from temptation. We're required to esteem others more highly than ourselves and always think critically about the thing that we want. Think critically about the thing that we're saying or doing and diligently consider, how does this thing that I'm doing or saying or desiring affect the people that God is calling me to live in covenant with? How is this affecting the people that I am called to serve and love and live with? We are all required to self-regulate. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, uh, the Apostle Paul says, each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. In, in another translation, everyone should know how to carry his body in sanctification and honor. Your vessel is your body, and to know how to do that. That is the first step. The first step of church discipline is self-discipline. It's self-governance. It's self-regulation, self-control. That's the first. And, and I read you a whole bunch of texts last week where that is, um, that is com consistently uh, called for throughout the scriptures. But because none of us do that perfectly and none of us do that consistently, there are times where things break down. We sin against each other, either deliberately or we sin against each other in ignorance. And we offend and we injure and we break covenant. Well, what happens then? What happens when somebody breaks covenant and injures or offends you? Well, the overwhelming majority of the time, when you are sinned against or offended, the right thing to do is nothing. That's the right thing to do because love covers a multitude of sins. You let love cover it and you forget it and you don't nurse bitterness over it. You don't put it on your list of offenses. Uh, you, you throw it behind your back. Just as you have been forgiven by God, you also move on. The overwhelming majority of sins do not call for rebuke or confrontation or discipline, because we're always sinning against each other in little ways. We're failing to do things we ought to do. We do things we ought not to do. We fail to esteem others more highly than ourselves. But who could live in any kind of relationship where we're always pointing out each other's flaws and offenses, where we go procedural on every transgression? You know, there's some people who read this, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him uh, his fault between you and him alone. And they, um, they make that automatic or, or wooden or mechanical and say, every single thing I have to bring to you. And, and often it's more than one thing. And, and they, they feel like that's, that's their duty and they're, they're not... Um, they're not living righteously unless they are always bringing this up to you. But who can live? Who can live under constant henpecking and nagging and nitpicking? That would be soul-crushing. That would be demoralizing. That would be a discouraging environment to live in. If Jesus can pray for the men who are putting him to death, who are actually in the process of putting him to death, and he's asking his father to forgive them for they know not what they do, then you and I can overlook someone's 
carelessness or forgetfulness or selfishness. Proverbs 19.11 says, the discretion of man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. You wanna be glorious? Here's one way, overlook transgression. Overlook offenses. If you want to be glorious, learn how to do this. But there are times, there are times where someone has offended you and you try to let love cover it and you try to forget it and it, it was so egregious, it was so obnoxious that, that you have to deal with it. Or there are times where somebody's wandering from the truth and you can't ignore it. So Jesus says in this event, he, he commands us to first go to them one-on-one -on -one and talk about the sin between the two of you. And Jesus says, alone. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is the first step outside of self-discipline. This is the first step in church discipline that Jesus gives us. If self-discipline has failed, then we need loving brother-to-brother -brother support. We need exhortation. We need encouragement. If, if everybody would make it their aim to do this every single time and do it the way Jesus said to do it, it, it would limit so much of the drama and the interpersonal conflict that just wastes so much of our time and resources and, and mental energy. And Jesus says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Uh, but, but we do this, the first step is to do this alone. The definition of gossip is sharing critical or sensitive information with someone who is neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. If you catch yourself telling some dirt or some detail or some sensitive information in the middle of it, and the person you're talking to is not part of the problem and they're not part of the solution, then you're a gossiper. You're a talebearer. You need to stop right there and say, oh, I'm sorry, you know what? I really shouldn't be sharing. It's not my news to share. It's not my thing to tell. I have to stop right here. But we're tempted to talk to everyone but the person who needs to be talked to. We're, we're, we're apt to spread this thing around and tell everyone except the person Jesus says you must tell. You must tell your brother who has sinned against you. So when you're sinned against, you have a choice. I'm either going to absorb this, let love cover it, or I'm going to talk to the offender. Talking to anyone else first is not one of the options. Later on, you may have to tell another witness. Jesus says you may have to tell one or two other witnesses to come with you. Well, they're, they're part of the solution, aren't they? They're not part of the problem, but they may be part of the solution. When you tell it to the church, they're part of the solution. But outside of that, you don't tell it to anybody who's not part of the problem and not part of the solution. We think it's um, so uncomfortable. We think it's so dreadful, so difficult to do what Jesus says do here, to go tell somebody their offense, to go, to go point out the sin. But almost every time, it doesn't turn out to be as awkward or heavy, as onerous as you think. You, you, you think about that confrontation, you think about that thing, and, and you start to dread it, and you lose sleep, and your, your stomach turns inside out. And you get to it, and you find out, well, I'm dealing with a brother here. And by the way, that's the whole context of everything I'm saying today. This is within the church. This is regulation of the church. Conflict resolution with unbelievers is a whole different subject that would require a whole different study. I think some of the principles apply, but you're gonna deal with different things. We're focused here on dealing with believers today. And when we're dealing with believers, when we're dealing with brothers, 
we together ought to want to know if we have offended each other. We want to know if we have injured each other because if, if I have offended or injured you, injured you I, I want to make it right. I want an opportunity to correct it. I don't want you nursing bitterness or sorrow or injury over something I've done that I didn't know I did and you haven't given me the opportunity to correct it. I want an opportunity to correct things. And so many times when you do this, you find out with, with the brethren, with the church, you find out that your offense is a matter of misunderstanding or miscommunication that's so easy to clear up. You, you weren't reading things clearly. It, the thing is not like you thought it was. Or the brother you're approaching says, oh, you're right. Oh, I'm so sorry. I messed up there. Oh, it was really, really bad. Please, can, can you forgive me? I, I'm, I'm, what, what do I need to do to make that right? Give me an opportunity to correct this. Uh, you'll get something like that or something like this. I've, I've been feeling really guilty about that and I didn't know if you took it wrong and I didn't know if you took it right and I, I really didn't even know how to approach it with you. So thank you so much for bringing that up to me because I didn't know what to do about it. But now that you come to me, I can make this right and we can correct it. That's the kind of healthy, brotherly correction that we do together. And it doesn't have to be this weird confrontational thing every time, especially if we begin by assuming the best of each other. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There are a few, a few uh, phrases in there that's very relevant to this conversation. 1 Corinthians 13, we read, love suffers long and is kind. Love is not easily provoked. So if we're loving, we're to be patient and not to be easily irritated. Uh, it also says, love thinks no evil. Love hopes all things. So if I have to approach you, I approach you with the hope that I am wrong. And the thing that I perceive is a misperception. I give you the judgment of charity. I assume that I'm the one who's not seeing things clearly. It's always a good thing to, when, when you do this, when you go to your brother and tell him his fault between you and him alone, it's, it's, it's always good to start not with accusations. I saw you do this thing and you're in deep sin and boy, you're in big trouble. And if we don't deal with this right now, we're gonna talk to the elders. That's, that's not typically a great way to approach things ordinarily, but, but you begin with questions. It may escalate if there's a lack of repentance, but, but beginning with, you know what, I, I could be wrong about this, but, but did I see this? Or um, I, I heard you say this, did, did I hear that correctly? Is that, is that really what you meant? This is what I heard you to be saying. Is that, is that true? Um, you begin with questions, and that's what love does. Love hopes all things. Love gives the other person an opportunity to explain. And then, of course, you, you, go, you go from there. You don't, however, come to someone and just, you know, vomit all of these accusations on them all at once. I'm sure you've dealt with somebody before who um, brings you a whole bunch of accusations that's like um, swatting hornets. It's like if you've ever run over a hornet's nest with a, a lawnmower or a weed eater or something, you get like, you know, uh, bees or, or these insects. It's just, you, you swat one or two away, but it's five or six more. And that's what manipulative people will do to you. They'll just throw you a whole bunch of stuff at once, knowing that you can't deal with everything 
And this is the way that they um, kind of control the relationship is by giving you too many things to deal with all at once. And I, you know, it's like an angry, angry hornet's nest. We don't do that to each other because we're not trying to manipulate each other. We're trying to get to the truth. And so that's why almost always um, we bring just one thing, just one thing. Here's the one thing. Jesus says his fault. That's, that's singular. Just one thing. We're going to deal with one thing. If we have to deal with something later, we'll deal with that. But here's this one thing. And if this conversation goes well, Jesus says, you've gained a brother. That's the best thing that can come out of any conflict between Christians is that we end up closer together. That's the goal from the very beginning of this process is that we're restored to fellowship. But in the rare case that this conversation is received poorly, or if your concern is ignored and you can't come to some kind of understanding or agreement between the two of you, then you have to get outside help. You appeal to the wisdom of other people. Maybe the person you think is in sin can't see clearly the error that they're in, but maybe you're in the wrong. Maybe you're calling something sin that isn't sin. Maybe your perception is off. Oh, it's possible that you're both wrong. And so when you bring in more counselors, there's more light. Uh, the Lord Jesus says, if he will not hear, Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. The goal is to shed more light on the situation. Wise men seek counsel. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So if we're all seeking to please the Lord in everything, then we all want to do what God says. And we'll take all the help we can get to do that. If you're dealing with a wise man, then he'll see this as an opportunity to correct and clarify and to do what is right. But sometimes, again, on occasion, you find out you're not dealing with a wise man. You're dealing with a fool who is clearly in sin, doesn't care what God says. They lean on their own understanding. A fool who's only seeking the kind of counsel that, that will tell them what they want to hear. And so if they won't hear you, and if they won't hear the other witnesses, then Jesus says you tell it to the church. And for us, that means we, we involve the elders. Verse 17. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So to recap, at this point, you've addressed the offense. You haven't gotten anywhere. You brought in counselors and witnesses who haven't made any progress either. So you come to the point where it's time to get the church involved. You contact the elders. You explain what's going on. And again, you do this with humility. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to be corrected. The, the process of appeals here is not intended to create all kinds of new drama and conflict. The point is to shed light on the issue and get to the truth and restoration and repentance and fellowship. And when you involve the elders of the church, they're going to work to establish all the facts of the case. They're going to ask a lot of questions. We're guided by two verses in Proverbs chapter 18. These are important. One, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. How many times have you heard somebody share something with you and said, oh, that's terrible, that's, that's, that's awful. Well, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and said, well, here's what you didn't know about. Here's the rest of the story. That's a guiding principle. So hearing everyone is, is a principle. And the second one is in Proverbs 18, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. If you hear something from one witness and then you blow up in judgment against the other person without hearing the whole story, the book of Proverbs says that is a folly and that is a shame. You are foolish and shameful if you do that. 
Uh, we don't want to be foolish, and we don't want to be shameful. So we're going to patiently work through everything step by step, and if necessary, issue a call to repentance. Now, if there is in fact sin or error, it becomes an issue of whether the offending party is going to remember their membership vows to pursue the peace and purity of the church, whether they're going to submit to the government of the church, or whether they're just going to go on and be a covenant breaker. Hopefully, we've come all this way, and the light bulb comes on, and there's repentance, and the conflict is resolved. Once you get to this point, you're going to find out, are you dealing with a person who has any regard for the church or the Lord Jesus or the Word of God? Do they love their brothers and sisters? Or do you have someone who's just bent on doing what they want to do? Almost every time when you get to this part of the process, if you're dealing with an unrepentant person who is in clear violation of God's Word, they don't want anything to do with meeting with the elders. They ignore our attempts to contact them. Uh, they ignore our, our attempts, our, our requests to come talk to us. And now their failure to respond becomes the central issue of, of correction. It's now no longer about the original thing that happened. It's about their refusal to submit to the government of the church. That's, that's now the problem. If the offender is not making any movement toward repentance and is not expressing any willingness to restore the peace, then Jesus says, let them be like a heathen. Treat them like an unbeliever. Jesus says, put them outside of your fellowship and don't recognize them as a Christian. When, when you put them outside the community, you do it with the hope that they'll see, this is where my sins have taken me. In the church, in the body of Christ is life. I'm cut off from life. In the church are the sacraments and the Lord's table, and I'm cut off from the blessing of word and sacrament. You, you want them to see uh, that, that you can't act like an unrepentant heathen and still pretend to be a Christian. You can't hold two identities at once. So they have to deal with the reality of where their sins have taken them. And even this, even this final step is an attempt at restoration and peace. We do this in hope of their repentance. When Paul takes up this subject in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's what we want. We want their salvation. We want their repentance. Church discipline is not about us throwing around our weight and being tin pot dictators. We're, we're, we're not trying to be bullies and tyrants. This is about us working to restore a peace that is broken. More often than not, folks get frustrated with how, with how painfully slow this process tends to go because we extend these overtures, we, we, we extend these calls to repentance, and we hope with all of our hearts that they heed the call. We pray that the Lord does a work in them to humble them and bring them back, and we are giving them time to do that. We are giving them time to repent. We always ride the brakes hard. We don't race ahead to do this. Excommunication is the last resort when every other effort has been exhausted. But because Jesus commands this, the church must never be too passive or too nervous or too afraid to do what Jesus says. Church discipline matters because the church matters. If we don't take church discipline seriously, it's because we don't take Jesus seriously. We don't take his word seriously. We don't take the body and bride of Christ seriously. We don't take our vows to each other seriously. We don't take our communion at the Lord's table seriously if we do not practice 
what Jesus tells us to do here. If we believe that Jesus is really here with us, as he said he is, I'm, I'm here with you. If he's here at his table in all of his power as king with his loyal subjects, then it matters who is invited there. It matters who is not there. And, and those who by their own sin have cut themselves off from union and communion with Christ. So having a high and holy and humble view of the church requires us to exercise self-discipline, to also practice brother-to-brother accountability and gentle, humble correction, and when necessary, to exercise church discipline, which is often painful. It's messy. It's difficult. It's complicated. When you're in the middle of it, there is no part of it that is fun or easy or delightful. And it opens us all up to criticisms. It opens the church up to criticism. You are too harsh. You are too partial. You're moving too slowly. You're moving too quickly. And we just have to realize that all of that comes with the territory. But what would you rather be a part of? A superficial church where tough things are never confronted, nothing's ever dealt with, where everything just has this veneer, this appearance of of being good, but where under that thin layer layer of appearances, it's it's just all about pretending that everything is okay. You wanna be part of that? Or would you rather be in a place where it's messy? Yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's ragged around the edges. It doesn't always look perfect because we're dealing with sin and sin is stupid. Sin is complicated. Sin gets you knotted up and wadded up. Sin messes up everything. And when we're dealing with this, we're gonna put on waders and put on those gloves that come all the way up your arm and get in there and deal with the sin. And it's never pretty. And it never looks, it never looks uh, right. Uh, it, you're, you're always second guessing yourself. You're always thinking, if I just did this, if I just said this, why I just didn't? But, but, but which church pleases Christ more? The church that never puts on the waders or the church that does? Which church will Jesus bless? Which church will Jesus remove his blessing and his glory from? So the call here is to walk in holiness. Control your mind, your tongue, and your body. Self-regulate. Exercise self-government. And this, not, this becomes a non-issue. This becomes not a problem. Also, be correctable. Be approachable. When you are approached. Don't deflect. Don't make excuses. Don't make accusations. Don't threaten. Make every effort in your life to give no offense and to take no offense. So love the brethren. Walk in peace with the church. Build her up. Don't tear her down by your sin and arrogance and pride and, and, and bad behavior. And pray for your elders that the Lord would give them wisdom and boldness and compassion and sound judgment. And if we're all doing this, then the Lord is going to bless what we're doing here and continue to bless us. So let's pray. Great Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for giving us your spirit. We appeal to you as the perfect judge to work things out perfectly before your throne and that uh, before your throne, you would grant us your spirit that we might exercise the real authority you've given us, that we might exercise that in holy reverence and fear and duty and a desire to please you in all things. So Father, we ask for these great blessings in Jesus' name, amen.